Hey friends, happy Tuesday. Welcome back. My name's Christina and this is Cruel and Unusual, a true crime podcast. Today I have a pretty gruesome story to tell. It's the story of the Black Dahlia, an unsolved murder from the city of Los Angeles. If you are well versed in the true crime world, you've definitely heard of this before. Um, And if you've never heard of it, I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you. Um, Yeah. So, trigger warnings for this episode include mentions of murder, suicide, mutilation, dismemberment, what else? And just, just all, is there an all of the above option? So if these aren't cool with you, no hard feelings and I will catch you next week. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, a stay-at-home mom named Betty Bersinger was out on a walk with her three-year-old daughter in their Los Angeles neighborhood when they came across a scene that would fuck them up, basically. The mother recalls as they were making their way down the sidewalk, she saw what looked like a mannequin laid out in a field ahead of them. As we've learned from Ashley Flowers and Crime Junkie, it is never, ever, ever a mannequin. So as they got closer, they realized that this figure they were seeing was actually the naked, lifeless body of a young woman who was severed clean in half. This is the story of the Black Dahlia. A beautiful young woman, tortured, killed, then sliced in half at the waist with surgical precision. Fifty years ago tonight, that discovery began a mystery that would become the most infamous unsolved murder in the history of Los Angeles and maybe the United States. Tony Valdez is live in the... Betty and her daughter rushed to a nearby home and dialed 911. Within minutes, the LAPD poured onto the scene to begin their investigation. The body was taken in for an autopsy while the police stayed behind to examine the area. In order to identify this woman, the medical examiner faxed a close-up photo of the victim's fingerprint to the FBI. And it only took them 56 minutes. The FBI replied within 56 minutes with the identity of their Jane Doe. The body was identified as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. I think this is really impressive for 1947. The FBI gets a blurry photo of a fingerprint on a 1940s fax machine, and they were able to match it and send back the identity in 56 minutes. Elizabeth had come to Los Angeles less than six months before her death looking for fame and fortune. She had dreams of becoming a Hollywood movie star 
and she definitely had the look for it. Elizabeth had the most beautiful feminine appearance like she was destined to be on screen. She had porcelain skin, she had bold straight eyebrows, she had light green eyes and jet black curly hair. Elizabeth was born in Boston, Massachusetts on July 29th, 1924. She was the third, she was the third of five daughters born to Cleo and Phoebe Short. Their father, Cleo, made his living designing miniature golf courses. Um, that this was only until 1929 with the stock market crash, he kind of, you know, they lost, he lost his job, they lost everything. Later in 1930, Cleo seemed to have vanished until his car was found abandoned on the bridge above the Charles River. The key was left in the ignition, and it was assumed by police that Cleo had committed suicide by jumping off of the bridge into the river. The family was absolutely devastated by this tragic loss, and the six remaining members of the Short family had to work even harder just to make ends meet. In late 1942, Elizabeth's mother received the most unexpected letter a widow could possibly receive. It was a letter written to her by her dead husband. Yeah. In the letter, Cleo was super apologetic and he admitted that he had run off to begin a new life in California. If that's not a fucking slap in the face, I don't know what is. I literally faked my death to get away from you. That's nice. Around the same time that they received this letter, Elizabeth was actually struggling with bronchitis and asthma and other respiratory issues that were exacerbated by the cold weather of Boston. So her doctor recommended that she relocate to a warmer area for the winter to alleviate her symptoms. Although she hadn't seen her father since she was six, the now 18-year-old Elizabeth packed her things and headed to California to live with Cleo in December of 1942. I really wish I was a fly on the wall when these two met up again. Because, like, what do you say to your father that literally faked his own suicide to get out of supporting you and your siblings? Unsurprisingly, the father-daughter roommate situation didn't go very well, and it was only about a month before the arguments between them had become so frequent that she couldn't take it anymore. Elizabeth moved out on her own and began working towards her aspiration of becoming an actress. When she moved out of her father's home, she... how do I say it? She was a social butterfly who was well acquainted with the party scene. She honestly sounds like she was a really, really fun person and I would have loved to know her. She did, however, have somewhat of a scandalous reputation for the time period simply because a woman like her was kind of unheard of. She partied often and she entertained different men and she just enjoyed herself and that wasn't really accepted in the 1940s. 
Shortly after she began living on her own in 1943, she was arrested at a bar for underage drinking. And this is actually what would allow for her body to be identified later. She was arrested and her fingerprints were taken and added to the criminal database. I'm going to put her mugshot on my Instagram, at Cruel and Unusual Crime. It is the most gorgeous, gorgeous mugshot you will ever see. Like literally, it is stunning. In July of 1946, the socialite finally made her way to LA to pursue her dream of fame. Elizabeth would only live in the city though for about six months before her life was so savagely taken from her. In the days leading up to her death, Elizabeth went on a short San Diego vacation with a man she was dating named Robert Manley. He was a 25-year-old salesman who went by the nickname Red. Upon their return from the vacation on January 9th, Red states that he dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA. He said that she asked him to drop her off there rather than at her house because she wanted to meet up with a friend who was in town visiting. Several people claimed to have seen Elizabeth in the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel and then a little bit later at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge shortly after. These would be the last times that anybody would see Elizabeth alive. There's not a lot known about her whereabouts between January 9th and the discovery of her body on the 15th, but on January 15th, 1947, at around 10 in the morning, we catch up with Betty and her daughter who discovered her body. Elizabeth's body was found a few feet away from the sidewalk in a grassy field. Her body was cut into two parts. It was severed perfectly at the waist, like straight across at the waist. The mutilation in this case actually resembles a legitimate surgical procedure called a hemicorporectomy. And this is where a surgeon actually amputates the body at the lumbar spine. So everything below the lumbar spine is removed. And the reason that you would do this is because usually it's a life-saving, you know, last resort for patients suffering from certain cancers, severe osteomyelitis, and things like that. So it's actually a legitimate procedure. And they could tell right away that whoever did this to her had some sort of medical knowledge just because of the technique used and how clean cut it was, it had to have been somebody who knew how to do it. Strangely enough though, there was zero blood found on or around her body or the crime scene. So it appears as though the killer had completely drained her of blood before disposing of her remains at this site. Her body was eerily clean, given the trauma that she endured, and she was white as a ghost. She was cleaned head to toe with gasoline. Even more frightening, the killer had cut about three inches, extending from each corner of her mouth 
and it created kind of a, a joker smile. The top half of her body was positioned about 12 inches above her bottom half. Her arms were positioned above her head, both at 90 degree angles, and her legs were spread completely open. There were no organs or intestines visible because the killer had neatly placed them underneath her lower half. Just, you know, kind of folded them like laundry under her fucking lower half. This is crazy. There are photos of the crime scene online. I'm obviously not going to include them on my Instagram, uh, so search at your own risk, but they do exist and they are horrifying. So the only pieces of evidence that were found at or near the scene was a partial footprint left in a set of tire tracks in the road, as well as a cement sack, like a bag that you would carry cement in with small traces of blood evidence inside of it. So it's believed that whoever did this to her carried some or all of her remains in this bag to the crime scene. During her autopsy, the medical examiners determined that she was killed between midnight and 1 a.m. that morning of January 15th. They found ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck indicating that she had been bound, possibly hogtied. Um, there was bruising seen all around the sides of her face, but there was very minimal bruising seen at her waist where she had been cut. So this suggests that at least, fortunately, the incision probably occurred after death. So that's, that's all we can hope for in this situation. The cause of death was determined to be intracranial hemorrhaging due to multiple blunt force traumas to the head and face. LA reporters quickly caught wind of what happened and they flooded the crime scene. They were responsible for coining the name the Black Dahlia. They gave her the name for a few reasons. One, her hair was black. She often wore black clothing and she often wore a flower in her hair. Additionally, there was also a movie that had just recently come out around this time called The Blue Dahlia. So they just kind of put that together and it stuck. So the reporters in this case are actually fucking disgusting. They grabbed at this opportunity to construe a story that would sell. They published countless articles about her personal life, labeling her a teaser, a serial dater, and a prostitute, which this was not ever true. There is no evidence that she was ever actually a prostitute. It just serves as an early example of victim blaming. They really made this woman out to be like some sex crazed maniac who had it coming and she deserved what she got. Like they dragged her name through the fucking mud. It's almost like they were saying that she deserved what she got. So fucking gross. In some reports, the journalists completely lied about the outfit that she was last seen wearing. That man, Red, told police that when he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel, Elizabeth was wearing a black suit, a white blouse, black suede high heels, um, white gloves, and a long brown coat. 
However, many articles say that she was wearing a sheer, skin-tight black top and a short leather skirt, and it's just like, okay, first of all, that's not true. So that's fucking disgusting that you're trying to make this woman out to be something she wasn't. And two, even if she was wearing this outfit, like the outfit that the articles say she was, it still wouldn't even matter. This shouldn't have happened to her, so I don't know the point even of lying about her outfit. So, Another thing about these reporters, in order to get behind-the-scenes details of Elizabeth's personal life, one male reporter called her mother, Phoebe, who was still living in Massachusetts at the time and was not even aware yet of what happened to her daughter. He called her and told Phoebe that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest in LA and he wanted to speak with her to gather some information on their winner. After he took down all the details that she could give them, he told her the truth. He said, "Mm, actually, so sorry, but Elizabeth was actually murdered. Yeah, she was mutilated and dismembered. Have a good day. I can't. I literally, I cannot imagine, imagine Phoebe getting this fucking call. Phoebe can't catch a fucking break. Police were the ones to notify Elizabeth's father, Cleo, back when they first learned of her identity at the crime scene. Police showed up to Cleo's doorstep, and when he answered the door, he was totally wasted, and he said he didn't care. He said he didn't even care that his daughter was murdered. He even denied their request for him to come to the station and give a positive ID on her body, so... This case has a lot of shitty characters in it. Like, not only were her father and the reporters just despicable, but the police also received close to 60 false confessions made by the public. People would call in to the LAPD and say that they knew who killed her or that they were the ones who killed her themselves, but all the tips led nowhere. There were even people sending, like, menacing letters to the LAPD, like, you'll never find me, don't come looking for me, I'm the one who killed the Black Dahlia, and these letters were written with letters cut and glued from a magazine. So it's like, they really went all out for this for no fucking reason. Although Elizabeth's murder has never been officially solved, there are a few promising suspects that I'll get into that have come up in the investigation. All of the suspects possibly share a motive, which is sexual rejection. First, of course, police looked at Red, Robert Manley, the man that she went on vacation with, and they searched his car and his home and they found nothing. No physical evidence that Elizabeth was ever in his home, nothing in his car, and there were no leads that puts Red anywhere near the case. So. They did arrest him, but they had to let him go because they had nothing. Secondly, and probably the most convincing to me, was a Hollywood doctor named George Hodel. Right away, 
It's giving suspicion because the police had always said that their suspect was most likely a surgeon or a physician or somebody else with medical knowledge. And when photos of Elizabeth made the headlines, many friends of George Hodel came forward to report that they remember her briefly dating George, like they had recently seen them together. So police looked into George and his past and they learned that he was actually tried in court for sexually abusing his 14-year-old daughter and actually getting her pregnant. There was even reports that he attempted to perform an abortion on his daughter in their own home, but it failed. He was just a shady fucking guy. Like, he was just shady. Police did not have any physical evidence linking George to Elizabeth or her murder other than two printed photographs of her in his possession. Police actually bugged his home and listened in on the happenings inside of George's house for a few days. It was reported that the audio was pretty shitty, but it was 1950, so what do they want? However, they could make out that on February 18th of 1950, at around 8.30 p.m., a woman is heard screaming from inside his home. They heard no voice of a woman before or after that. It was just the screams and then there was silence. After that, George was either on the phone or talking to another person inside the house because he's heard as saying, quote, Suppose I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. And this secretary that he's referring to had just recently died from an overdose, quote-unquote overdose. So it's possible that she knew something that she wasn't supposed to know and he wanted to get rid of her. George's son... Steve Hodel, who was actually a retired LAPD detective, believes that his father was responsible for the killing of Elizabeth Short. Steve actually uncovered a paper receipt belonging to George that was dated just a few days prior to the murder, and the purchase was for a sack of cement, the exact type of bag found at the crime scene with traces of her blood. George Hodel stood at number six on the LAPD's list of suspects in the murder of the Black Dahlia. At this point, everyone believed that George was responsible for the killing. By April of 1950, police actually had enough evidence to charge George with the murder, but before they could get to him, George had fled the U.S. and he was never seen again. In 2013, 66 years after the murder, investigators decided, "Mm, let's revisit this. They tested the soil from the backyard of George Hodel's previous home in LA for signs of human remains, and it came back positive. Positive. I mean, the thing about this is it doesn't this test doesn't tell you who it is, when it's from, anything, but just the fact that it came back positive tells you that at some point human remains were buried in this yard so i don't know if you ask me it's george hodel but i don't know 
So 75 years have passed since the tragic, horrible, gruesome murder of Elizabeth Short, and still justice has not been served. The investigators, the witnesses, and the killer are most likely all deceased by now, and we may never truly know who is responsible for the murder of the Black Dahlia. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.